This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. Viet Thanh Nguyen has spent his lifetime thinking about war. As a child, he fled with his family from Vietnam to the U.S. after the fall of Saigon. He's now a celebrated author and self-described scholar of memory. Viet's debut novel explored the aftermath of the Vietnam War through the eyes of a spy. It's called The Sympathizer, and it won the prestigious Pulitzer Prize in 2016. And though he was first well-known as a novelist, Viet's now regarded as a provocative public thinker who guides his readers to probe deeper into the nuances that get lost in conflict, a theme that is very resonant in this moment. Viet's new memoir weaves together his views on contemporary life with his family's origin story as refugee. And I spoke with him about it a couple of weeks ago before the current conflict between Israel and Hamas. The title of your memoir is A Man of Two Faces, which is how the narrator of your novel, The Sympathizer, described himself. But in this case, Viet, A Man of Two Faces is how you describe yourself. What do you mean by that? How are you a man of two faces? I came to the United States as a refugee in 1975 from Vietnam. And I was, on the one hand, raised as a Vietnamese person in a 100% Vietnamese household, as my parents like to tell me. But I was also raised as an American through no choice of their own, simply because I was going to American schools and exposed to American popular culture. And so I felt myself to be also an American. Therefore, in my parents' very Vietnamese household, I was uh, an American spying on these strange Vietnamese people and their customs. And outside in the rest of the American world, I was a Vietnamese people spying on Americans and their strange customs. So I, from, you know, from a very young age, I felt this duality of, of having two faces and two perspectives. And that is not uncommon, I think, among a lot of immigrants or refugees or so-called minorities of various kinds. And I've carried that with me into my adulthood and my work and I found my life not so very interesting until I wrote this memoir, so I wrote a novel instead, where I created a man of two faces with much more dramatic possibilities. Yeah, I like that um, idea of spy. I'm a kid of Indian immigrants, and it, it is always sort of, especially as a kid, navigating, curating, figuring out, but really spying, finding out what, what makes ticks and communities and cultures work and why they are the way they are. Yeah, I think that's not uncommon. And and one other aspect of this is that being a spy is not an uncomplicated thing. Uh, it requires loyalty, but it also requires betrayal. Who, who are you loyal to? Who are you betraying? You're there, or at least I'm there, watching these secrets and intimacies unfold. Um, and I, I look at, you know, both what Americans do and Vietnamese do with love and also skepticism at the same time. It's not always a, a comfortable position to be in because I think for a lot of people, they don't want to be spies. They want to be 100% on one side or the other. 
and the duality um, or even the multiplicity of of possible possibilities uh, is unsettling for a lot of people. But for a writer, at least, it's very good to be capable of seeing things from at least two sides, perhaps more. Uh, and then you're faced as a writer with the challenge of whether or not you're going to betray these intimacies and these customs and these secret knowledges that other people don't know about. There's a story you tell in the book um, about your dad that I want you to tell us about how your dad found out about your Pulitzer Prize win. Honestly, I never expected to win the Pulitzer. I didn't even know what day the Pulitzer announcement was coming. I was in a hotel room in Cambridge, Massachusetts, getting ready to do a, a book event when uh, Twitter started to inform me that, oh, you won the Pulitzer Prize. I was like, oh, well, that's nice. Um, so one, <laughs> you know, it was obviously very, very shocking. Um, I went and did the event and moved on with my life. I had another book event the next day. And literally, I think the only person I called was my wife when I found out about the news. I, I did not occur to me literally to uh, talk to my parents about it. Um, I think partly, well, mostly because why brag to these people? I mean, my parents that are, in my mind, hero- heroic, you know, they, they live very ordinary lives, but they also sacrificed tremendously and saw all kinds of historical world shaking things happen in their life uh, in Vietnam. And they had done so much for me and, and, and they were so modest about what they had done. I felt there was no need for me to brag to my own parents about about mm. this, especially when they didn't read my books. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, they'd sacrificed so much. I didn't want to torment them by actually making them read my books. <laughs> so the next day I was in another city uh, and for another book event. And then the phone rings. My father's calling me. Uh, you know, his, he's, he's, he says, oh, the villagers from Vietnam called. And his voice is shaking with happiness. You won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, and I was like, wow, I finally made my father proud and all it took was winning uh, the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) This is the story of um, refugees and and that, that, that kid and parent relationship. As you say, they give up so much to give their kids you know, the better life. And just for, for people who may not be familiar with your family's story, you left in 75, 1975, after the fall of Saigon. So you're four years old when you arrive in the United States and you and your family come as refugees. And in your book, you talk about how your mom told you stories of her childhood, that they would kind of be tidbits that kind of slipped out about her past. They were dark. You call them occasional stories that would leak out. Why do you think she shared them in that way, in those sort of dribs and drabs? And what impact now as an adult, when you look back on it, do you think that had on you? You know, we we had a shared language in Vietnamese, uh, but I came when I was four and I was fluent in Vietnamese at four years of age. And I pretty much stayed that way for, for quite a while. Uh, so I think it was very, even if, even if my mom and dad wanted to tell me longer stories about their childhood and so on um, and their life in Vietnam, it would have been very difficult for me to comprehend. And so I think that there was that barrier. And then there was also probably just a reluctance to talk about the past because so much of their past uh, was traumatic. It had to be given what they experienced. You know, my they were born in the 1930s uh, in northern Vietnam. They they witnessed a famine that killed more than a million people. They were refugees in 54 and 75. They saw war, all these all these terrible things. Uh, do you really want to talk about that to your mm. five or 10 year old child? Um, what would that kids say in, in response. Uh, but I think that I, I just think that those those things, those that history left left, of course, a deep imprint on my mother, for example. 
and uh, you, you know, traumatized her. I, I just don't, don't know of a better word. Uh, so I was plucking hairs from, from her head one day when I was probably 10 or 11 and plucking gray hairs. And, and she just started recounting this episode of how when she was a little girl, younger than I was probably at the time, uh, she saw that famine in her northern village and she saw a dead child on his uh, doorstep i didn't say anything back you know i was like i don't know what to make out of this story and i didn't give her a hug we didn't hug in our family um i didn't give her any solace and but why did she tell that story i i i think it was literally unforgettable for her and and maybe it just slipped out um as memory you know part of the problem of memory is sometimes we seek out memories and other times memories seek out us. And I think that memory sought her out at that moment. And she just had to say something about it. Hmm. That concept of, of war memories is one you've explored deeply throughout your career. You've written a lot about a quote unquote, just or ethical remembrance of conflict. What is the relationship between memory and justice as you see it? Well, I think, of course, uh, there's this idea that we should do justice to memory, to the way that things happened, whether those things happen within our family or community or or nation. So the notion of memory and justice is deeply intertwined. I think we're all invested in this idea that if something has happened, we should properly recall it. But of course, it's a huge debate about what is the proper recall. Uh, we can talk about a fact, a war, for example, or a battle or an argument. That fact happened, but How do we do it justice? How do we account for the different perspectives and conflicting sides? That's the true work of the justice uh, involved in memory. And that's why the the debate over over memory is so volatile in so many uh, different cases. And there's endless numbers of examples that we can bring up when it comes to war and memory for uh, the United States or Canada or or Vietnam and so on. And uh, besides the inherent imperative to remember justly. There's also the fact that how we remember the past is going to determine what we do in the present and the future. And so when it comes to war and memory, so many of the uh, efforts to memorialize war or soldiers or whatever um, are not just about the past. They're very much about justifying what it is that our country, our culture, our side is doing in the present. And so if we look at just this specific example of the American war in Vietnam, uh, the United States has been fighting this war in memory ever since the war ended in different ways. And one of the, it's, the reason it does so is to resolve internal American conflicts, but also to justify the wars that the United States has waged and, and is waging ever since the end of uh, the war in Vietnam. So let me ask you about two very, one ongoing and one recently, um, quote unquote, ended war. Because as you say, how we remember stories, how we tell stories, both past and in the present, is critically important. So as you watch the war in Ukraine unfold, how have you been thinking about the narratives that are unfolding? I think that the narratives unfolding, at least in the United States and in dominant culture in the United States, is very much a Cold War narrative. It's almost a complete replay of the Cold War, which is a binary narrative. There's good, there's bad, uh, there's good and evil, and we, the Americans and the Western Europeans, are on the side of good. Um, the Russians or the Soviets of the past or the Chinese or the North Koreans are on the side of evil. And there's a country caught in the middle. In this case, it's Ukraine. So however one feels about Ukraine and the conflict, and I personally think it is wrong for any country to invade another country. So I do think Russia is in the wrong to invade Ukraine. The problem with the Cold War narrative is that it forces us to choose sides. So now the Russians become the evil ones and the Ukraine uh, Ukrainians become the good guys. 
which vastly, I think, oversimplifies the fact that this particular war takes place in the context of larger geopolitical conflicts and strategies and campaigns that all these different countries are waging. Uh, and so the the problem uh, here is that in the United States, when Americans say, well, yes, the Russians are evil, they should never invade another country, how dare they kill civilians, how dare they shoot up, uh, drop bombs on markets and, and things like that. The problem is that it prevents Americans from thinking about the fact that we do this every day. <laughs> it's like we just did this uh, in Afghanistan and, and we, we take it as our God-given right to shoot drone missiles into any country we want whenever we want to. Uh, we would never as Americans tolerate that happening to us, but somehow it's okay for us to do it to other countries. And then we, we forget about those things precisely by creating Cold War narratives, casting other countries, in this case, Russia, as the true villains. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up um, Afghanistan, a long war, and the U.S. troops pulled out just a little over two years ago. And I think some, uh, uh, I don't want to say story, but stories and a country that has really, unfortunately, fallen off the radar in terms of what's happening and how much we talk about it and the responsibility of all kinds of people and countries. So when you say... Look, when I look at Ukraine, we did this in Afghanistan. What other stories do you think have been missing from the way we are talking and understanding what happened in that war? You know, Americans become interested in other countries, uh, and this is not atypical. Uh, they become interested in other countries to the extent that those other countries reflect their own interests. And so I think for, you know, Americans, when we, whether it's Afghanistan or Vietnam or, or Ukraine, it's it's very much casting People, the inhabitants and the participants of that war in in conflict in narratives of conflict that are oriented around American interests, and so I think that the American narrative around Afghanistan was always uh, making Afghanistan Afghans subordinate to the larger American narrative of the American uh, number one right to intervene anywhere, but also this idea that when America intervenes, it's doing so both for the good of Americans, but also for the good of the people um, in question. And so when we do get Afghan narratives, it's oftentimes a subtext that the Afghans that we're interested in are, are somehow serving American interests in some way. Their plights, their, their, their needs, their tragedies, as awful as those might be, still reflect positively because Americans are there to defend or help or, or rescue Afghans. That, that, I think, was how the, the very end of the war, the American part of the war in Afghanistan unfolded at the, at the airport in Kabul. If you remember, um, Americans came in and and uh, sent troops in, and and of course lost a dozen or thirteen Marines at a at a at a suicide bombing. That narrative very much fits the narrative of American sacrifice and American rescue of people. That's what Americans would choose to remember. You know, the 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 plight of all those people at the airport and the and the dead Marines, all very important. But I also choose to remember. That one of the last things that the United States did um, during the fall of Kabul was to fire a drone missile into a car uh, at a garage, at a home garage, that killed the driver and, and nine of his children and relatives. And it was because the United States thought that this uh, driver was driving a, a car bomb, when in fact he worked for an American NGO. Um, and the joint uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, it's a righteous strike. He said that before the United States discovered who the driver really was. But, you know, we shed no tears as a country over that, uh, that that driver and his family, but we are expected to shed tears over the Ukrainians that the Russians are killing. 
So one of the conversations that you have in your country, and maybe arguably so, we have more in, in, in my country, in Canada, is um, refugees out of wars. So if we look at Afghanistan, Canada is still shy of reaching the target that the federal government set out of bringing 40,000 Afghan refugees in. And we've brought in about 166,000 Ukrainians since that war has has started. And that contrast hasn't been lost on some Canadians. But beyond comparing numbers um, via, you know, the other conversation that we're having in this country is about welcoming immigrants. Again, our federal government has goals to welcome half a million immigrants by 2025. And there's polling out there that more than half of Canadians are not in favor of us bringing in this many immigrants. They want fewer people because of concerns over our housing, the cost of living. Um, how do we have these conversations about migrants, immigrants, refugees in a productive way in 2023? There are ways to do that productive conversation. Uh, we can talk about everything from the morality uh, uh, of welcoming immigrants and uh, refugees. But I, I think that the, the argument about morality uh, and ethics and the ethical need to welcome immigrants and refugees falls increasingly on on deaf ears because people are attuned, many people are attuned more to the, the demands of their pocketbook, like uh, you know, there are not enough jobs or there are not enough resources and so on. And so I think the, the, the narrative also has to be about this issue of the host society and its relationship to its own resources, its own wealth. That's a difficult conversation to have, this idea that there should be enough places at the table, there should be enough food and jobs and so on, not just for uh, the the people who are coming, but the, the people who are already here. And because I know less about Canada, but in the United States, you know, there there is this idea that we are living in a time of economic scarcity, we can't share we should change that narrative. We are not living in a time of economic scarcity. We're living in a time in which certain uh, people and groups are holding on to uh, more of the resources than others. That should be the real narrative um, and instead of blaming immigrants and refugees. It's a difficult narrative to, to undertake because, in fact, the idea of blaming outsiders and others has been <laughs> with uh, society since probably forever, um, but we certainly see it evident in Canadian and American society. Uh, but for those of us who think that it is a good idea to welcome immigrants and refugees, I think that the, these these are two of the three things we we have to emphasize: morality and ethics on the one hand, um, the expanding of the of the economic pie on on the other, and then finally this idea that without immigrants and refugees, without newcomers, countries like Canada and the United States are going to face a real shortage of people able and willing to do many different kinds of jobs in the very near future. And mm -hmm. we, can, we, we can look at countries like Japan or China that are graying and so on uh, to look at places where that, 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 that are already going through these kinds of problems and partly because they have an ambivalent relationship to outsiders. I want to come back to you, and I know all of this is, is you as a writer, but, but the actual writing process. There's a section in your book where you write about being a so-called minority writer in the North American literary landscape and how that often comes with this expectations from others to, to talk about so-called sob stories and, and trauma. Some writers describe that as a burden, but you see it as a currency. Well, it is a burden um, that writers of the so-called majority don't have, because if you're of the so-called majority, you can safely assume that your audience shares a similar context. So you don't have to explain things or translate things and so on. 
And writers of so-called minority backgrounds may feel quite tempted because they don't have the power to, to publish themselves and they don't share a common culture necessarily with the, the power brokers of the publishing world. These writers may feel uh, this, this burden to tell their entire community stories, which is impossible. And they may feel the burden of having to uh, translate or explain things, which, you know, they should never do, in my opinion. Uh, but I also think of it as a currency because if these writers do what it is that the dominant culture expects of them, they might very well be rewarded for that. Um, increased book sales, increased recognition, this kind of thing. So there's a way in which the so-called minority does benefit from that experience by fetishizing it. That is a deep danger that I've, I've certainly tried to warn against, uh, often. And it's attached to this idea that it's, it's not as if the United States doesn't want immigrants and refugees and minorities to talk about their pain and their problems. In fact, I think the publishing industry, which is staffed mostly by liberals, incites that trauma. They want to, they audience, the audience wants to hear the traumatic stories. And so for immigrants and refugees to the United States, maybe to Canada, there's obviously the expectation that, well, yes, you experienced racism. We know that's a part of American society, for example. But the important thing is that you overcame it because you are a writer. As much as they suffered, look at you. You got a voice. You have a book. You have a story. You have a publishing deal, all that kind of stuff. But there's a limit. And for me, the limit in the United States context is that the American, the narrative of the American dream is so strong that it's very difficult to overcome. Now, at the level of literature, you're not simply supposed to wave the flag and say, yay to the American dream. That's a little uncouth. But the narrative of the American dream should be subtle. You should still affirm that the United States is, for all of its complications and racism and other problems, it's still the greatest country on earth. That's the the underlying American dream narrative that is so hard for so many uh, writers to overcome. You've said before, quote, I don't believe in being a voice for the voiceless, which I think sometimes is also a pressure put upon uh, writers like like yourself. Why not? It's such a temptation to be a voice for the voiceless uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, because who wouldn't want the voiceless to be spoken for? And number two, why shouldn't it be me? If it has to be anybody, it should be me. <laughs> I'm using me figuratively. But I've always felt that to be deeply problematic. Um, and I always quote the writer, uh, Arundhati Roy, who summarized it very simply. You know, She said, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. They're only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And she's absolutely right. I mean, I grew up in this Vietnamese refugee community. There was, they were, we were loud. You know, There's always <laughs> stories going on. And we were, and Vietnamese people were publishing their own books and their own newspapers and doing their own shows in Vietnamese. We were not voiceless. We were just unheard or we were silenced. And so when someone is invited or anointed to be a voice for the voiceless by the majority or the dominant society, what's really happening is the elevation of one voice and one representative and the silencing uh, of the entire community. Because if you're part of the dominant society, you literally have thousands of writers and storytellers talking about your shared experience. But somehow the the, the so-called minority community only gets the one voice hmm. for the voiceless. Uh, that is a trick <laughs> that's being offered uh, at the burden and the currency of otherness that's being offered to that community to, to have the one spokesperson. When we know that 
any community has thousands of stories. And so I've always rejected that label. I've always felt that it was more important to to emphasize what Arundhati Roy said. And my addendum to that is that we shouldn't elevate voices for the voiceless. Uh, that just keeps people voiceless. What we should be doing is abolishing the conditions of voicelessness. But that's much harder you know, to abolish those conditions. It involves poverty and structural racism and incarceration and things like this. Uh, and so we can't separate the question of voice from the question of deep inequality throughout our societies. It's been a pleasure listening to you. Um, and I thank you for this in your book. It speaks to so many of the big issues that um, probably we don't spend enough time thinking or talking about. Thanks a lot, Viet. Pia, it's been a delight talking to you. Viet Tan Nguyen's new book is called A Man of Two Faces, A Memoir, A History, A Memorial. And I spoke with him a couple of weeks ago before the current conflict between Israel and Hamas. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.